Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Welcome into episode number 69 of In The Shift, and we do have a real treat for you today, I must say that. I mean, we always do, don't we? But today, especially, we have a conversation that I had very recently with uh, Caitlin Beatty, author of the recently published book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. And uh, I read this book recently and was struck by how many of the themes that Caitlin talks about in this book are themes that we've been wrestling with and talking through in various ways this year, and in particular in light of some of the, the stories of of megachurch fallout and trauma and harm. And and one of the things that has come up in those conversations uh, has been, a number of times from a number of different angles, has been the shape of leadership, the uh, the type of leader model that is being uh, used in these spaces and the kind of harm that is propagated because of those those models. And, uh, and we've talked about honor culture and we've talked about, you know, uh, the authoritative voice who cannot be questioned and... And so on. I think what's really interesting about this conversation is it kind of connects some dots between what's happening here in New Zealand and what's happening elsewhere, like in North America. It also comes at this conversation through the lens of of celebrity as well. Um, and although we get into abuse of power and we get into institutional uh, abuse and cover ups and all sorts of funky stuff, uh, we, you know, by coming at this conversation through the lens of celebrity, I think we're able to see some things that are going on here in a sort of a fresh and a different light that help give us another layer of understanding and of seeing how these pieces all fit together. And so whether you are someone who's been in uh, a, a mega church style church, that the pastor may, they may not be a global celebrity, but they may even just be kind of like a celebrity within the space, within the faith community you find you have, you found yourself within or find yourself within. Uh, or then we can we can trace that right through to to people who are on the circuit, you know, which kind of seems to be the the aim of so many leaders in these spaces to get on the kind of the touring circuit around the conferences and and so on. Um, so we really we, we dive into kind of where that um, ethos has come from. We talk a lot about what that does, not just in terms of the fact that that's a problem in itself, but that it actually reshapes and changes uh, the content of of Christian faith within those church spaces. It, it, it reshapes what we're even talking about, uh, what we're even saying we experience, what the gospel, to use that kind of term, uh, really even is. Uh, and so, you know, this is, a, from from those angles, just such an insightful and interesting conversation. I'm so grateful to Caitlin for for giving her time to to talk. Uh, and we even, look, we even have a little nerd out Lord of the Rings um, reference <laughs> towards the end because, oh man, don't know if you know this about me. Got a big love. Got a big love for Lord of the Rings since I was a little fellow. So yeah, so that pleased my heart. Uh, hey, so yeah, um, there we go. That's that's coming up shortly. As always, you can get in touch via feedback at intheshift.com. Let us know what you think. Tell us your stories or your insights, your experiences or what questions you might have. You can also get in touch on the socials, the Instagrams and Facebooks of this world. And, uh, and of course, you'll know you can support the work of In The Shift and help make this thing sustainable. Because I tell you what, it's been a big year. Uh, it's been a big year and we've been working through a lot. So if you want to help make this thing happen, uh, then you can go to patreon.com slash in the shift and you can give a little or give a lot uh, a month and or somewhere in between. Hey, up to you. Uh, but certainly no pressure to do so. Don't, don't do that if you 
can't if you don't have the resources to do so. Uh, but but if you do and you want to, then please uh, come along. And, and in doing so, you get to jump on our, our patron uh, Discord as well, our online community space where we get to have lots of yarns online with each other about all sorts of fun, interesting um, and traumatic things. Ha ha ha. So yeah, that'll be good. Come along for the ride. So um, I think that's all I need to say about that. This is episode... <laughs> do you know what? I just mucked up my line. I will say... <laughs> what do I normally say? This is episode 69. Let's get into it. Um, I, I did note in listening back to uh, uh, the last episode, uh, fantastic conversation with Jess and Shalomi, by the way, loving the feedback that's coming in in relation to that conversation. So good. Please go back and listen to it. This is a segue, isn't it? Uh, but I did accidentally call the podcast in the shaft uh, for a moment there last time. So, hey, let that bless you. This is episode 69 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Today on In The Shift, I'm joined by Caitlin Beatty, author of the recently published book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms and Profits Are Hurting the Church. So welcome to In The Shift, Caitlin. So glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I, I thought perhaps by, by way of introduction and setting the scene in this conversation, I should mention you're based in, uh, in New York, I think, or in, in the US. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. based in Auckland, New Zealand. Very different contexts in some respects, and yet what you've written about here is so particularly relevant to what's been happening in our part of the world in recent mm. times, both Australia and New Zealand, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we like to fight with each other, we are we are quite similar in a lot of ways. Um, and there have been stories related to Hillsong Church, which I know you'll be familiar with, with some of that. And Hillsong has been, in many respects, kind of an exemplar church in Australasia for probably more than two decades, well before it made its way to the, mm-hmm. to the US. Um, and then more mm-hmm. recently, churches like uh, Arise Church in New Zealand. And and as these stories have started coming out, then all of these other stories are also coming out of the woodwork of, of people's experiences in these kinds of spaces. And so much of what you're talking about is what we're seeing as well in, in these stories here. Uh, and perhaps that's not surprising. Mm-hmm. We've got networks of connections between where we are and where you are. Um mm-hmm. So one of the big things that's come up in, in the stories of a lot of people has been the way in which the pastors of these churches, especially these large churches, mega, mega churches, mm-hmm. they've become these distant figures um, whose word is final and cannot be challenged. Um, the prevalence mm-hmm. of honor culture and the way that's functioned in these spaces to kind of elevate these figures above the, the community um, and, and becoming celebrities in, in their own way. Um, whether mm-hmm. whether that's whether that's just within their faith community, or if they really kind of make it, then then they become celebrities in the in the wider Christian space. So, uh, and what we're seeing out of that is a kind of a trail of wreckage, to be to be honest, uh, of of that kind mm. of model. So I think you know your book is is really important in this time and in this moment. Um, and I'm so grateful for what you've contributed to the to the conversation through that. And I'm really just looking forward to to asking you a lot of questions that I have. Today. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, thank you for setting up our conversation that way. I was I was just reading about what's happened at Arise Church in New Zealand. Of course, in the United States, we don't hear a lot of news about the church in New Zealand. Mm. So when there's this big breaking story, it it caught my attention. 
And as I was reading about this independent report that came out and its recommendations and the way it affected the lead pastor who was you know, recommended that he stepped aside, the similarities to mm. stories of fallen megachurch pastors and megachurches that have kind of crumbled in recent years, the similarities were so striking, almost as to be eerie, yeah. um, which tells you that there, I mean, of course, there will be regional and national uh, and relational specifics in each of these stories. But when you start to see those patterns emerge, you know, as a journalist, I'm when I see those patterns, I think, oh, there's something in the water here mm. that needs to be um, identified and leached out of the water because it's poisonous. So, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, I think, even being down this part of the world, which can feel like it's, uh, sometimes it's talked about as being a recipient of like American culture. Um, but I feel like there's almost more of a, a back and forth relationship than that. Like I went to 15 or so years ago when I was a mega church kid uh, in my 20s, very pumped up about it all. And I would go off to mm. Hillsong conferences in, in Sydney, uh, which were kind of the the, the climax of, of the annual calendar for, for many people. Uh, and we had American, there would be American, you know, um, pastors and, and preachers coming out to Hillsong. And they were looking, they would say verbally from the stage that they would look around at the the coolness, for want of a better word, the the lack of mm-hmm. kind of robes and and pretend Roman pillars, and and instead it was you know it was torn jeans and and rock and roll, uh, <laughs> right? And, and they would say, oh, we're going to go back and change things when we go back to the US, you know. Um, and it's mm. it's kind of interesting to me that just the back and forth relationship between these between these spaces and how they impact one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to begin yes, with the, the yeah, sure, you go. <laughs> The universality of torn skinny jeans <laughs> yes. as an effective missional tool. <laughs> That's right. Torn skinny jeans and hotness, I think. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd love to begin with, the, with, this, with this question of celebrity itself. Like You, you talk about it as this uniquely modern phenomenon um, made possible by mass media to some degree. Um, so how mm-hmm. do you understand celebrity and how has it found its way into the church as you see it? Yeah. Well, I think of celebrity, as you said, as a uniquely modern phenomenon. In the book, I distinguish it from fame. You know, there have always been people who have found themselves to be famous in every time and place because of their creativity or accomplishments or bravery, military prowess. There have always been people whose work in the world brings about a kind of renown. And, you know, speaking as a Christian, then the question becomes, well, if you find yourself with that some kind of measure of fame. What do you do with it? How do you steward it? How do you not let it go to your head? Celebrity um, relies on the tools of mass media, you know, beginning with the newspapers. The early evangelists in America relied on newspaper buzz to create spectacle around their crusades to draw more people. Mm. Billy Graham, the arguably the most famous evangelist of the last century, was very pragmatic and even progressive in embracing radio and television. Um, You know, why not use these tools to reach as many people with the gospel of Christ? He bragged once that he could reach many more people than Jesus could in his lifetime, which is a pretty braggy claim, but it's true. (laughs) Um, So I think when we think about the excesses of celebrity and the dangers of celebrity, I think celebrity is tapping into something 
on the level of ultimate attachment, adoration, affinity. So in that way, celebrities do something for us. They do something Mm. for the people who follow them, who adore them, who, you know, check their social media feeds to find out what they had for breakfast, our attachment to them. We're getting something from our attachment to them. And I think in the church, um, you know, celebrity leaders tell us that we're all going to be on mission to do big things for God. And if we just line up behind the leader's vision and purpose and join them in this special, spiritually superior mission, we will be uber Christians and we will get to do really important kingdom work. So in that way, I think, you know, these, these celebrity pastors wouldn't exist without us. (laughs) People are on pedestals because other people have put them there. And I think these pastors often rise to such levels of prominence because they're providing this message of exciting spiritual mission and encounter with God. And who doesn't want to be a part of that? Mm -hmm. Um. I, I was thinking about the fact because because most of the mega churches in in Australasia are Pentecostal in um mm. in in shape, um, less of just your sort of standard evangelicals, uh, and so there's there was um there would often be you know the 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 visiting preacher or, or someone who would come through and give the give the prophetic words over various people even within these mega spaces to some degree although much more mm-hmm. curated and controlled in, in those environments than in the like small town Pentecostalism that I grew up in. But the prophecies mm. were always, you know, given to people of, I see you on a stage before thousands of people, or I see you, you know, or pick out the song leader, and I see you writing songs and traveling the world, uh, which is very much like what you're, t- there's that that figure who represents all of that, who's kind of bestowing the possibility of that upon mm-hmm. other people who are, who are present there. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean... Most of my personal experience and journalistic research is more in the <laughs> staid and <laughs> controlled evangelical spaces. Yes. I'm fascinated by Pentecostalism. I could be wrong about this. It seems like one dynamic in Pentecostal theology is a kind of comfort with uh, a language of dominion and power. Mm. <laughs> and God's call for people in the church to to gain greater and greater power in order to kind of take the culture for Jesus um, or to influence the culture for Jesus. So there's a kind of coziness with the idea that you know, God's uh, purposes for you happen to align with a very exciting celebrity-like status as long as you use that to reach people with the message of Jesus. Mm. Um, and of course, there's there's the prosperity theology yeah. connected to that. Um, why wouldn't God want you to be wealthy? <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, you'll use your wealth to, to bless people. But <laughs> um, so it's just, yeah, it's fascinating that intersection of Pentecostal theology mm. and practices and celebrity. And then I also think of, and I say this, being rather agnostic about some of the Pentecostal gifts. Um, But I imagine that if you believe that God speaks directly to a church's leaders in words and visions and dreams, how can you then 
question mm. what the leader is telling you. Like if you have collapsed <laughs> yes. um, the Holy Spirit and the person, mm. it can be really hard, I imagine, in those contexts to maybe trust your own spirit, to trust your own intuition or discernment. Say like something about this doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right. There's fruit from this that is bad, but oh my gosh, but this person is hearing directly from God and I don't want to be the person who challenges God, who doesn't submit to that. So, yeah. Yeah, that absolutely happens, I think. You know, I think Pentecostalism in some degree started fairly in a fairly egalitarian shape that everybody could mm. hear from God. But over time, I think, mm. and and this kind of culture of, of kind of the, the, the big celebrity, you know, authoritative leader, has over time come to be like the oracle, you know, the one who who descends mm-hmm. from the mountain with the word for the people that God has directly told them. And so it does add this layer of of divine authority and divine power to, to what it is that they're mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in this idea of like what this does for us. And one of the things you talked about, um, one of the phrases you used is like a parasocial relationship, which was a term I hadn't mm-hmm. come across before, but I found quite helpful. Could you kind of unpack that idea of, of that, the, the parasocial relationship between the celebrity and the, and the, and the person? Yeah. So <laughs> this was a term that goes back to the sixties and seventies um, researchers talking about um kind of Hollywood celebrities and the again the use of mass media radio television um movies I started seeing that phrase come up a lot um in relation to uh, tabloid stories coming out about a very popular comedian at least here in the US named John Mulaney and he was going through a series of kind of personal dramas and the level with which his fans reacted <laughs> mm. to this news that in fact had no bearing on their lives and John Mulaney doesn't care at all about you and doesn't want a relationship with you, but you want a relationship with him Mm. and you've attached to him to such an intense degree that, you know, if he leaves his wife, which he did, we feel personally wronged or personally disappointed. I thought you were this guy Mm. and you're actually this guy. Mm. So, it develops kind of as a, um, a parasocial relationship develops almost as an identity formation tool in relation to celebrity figures. We attach to people who, of course, we we don't know, but media give us the illusion of intimacy. And from our attachment, we kind of learn what we want to be like, who we want to be like, who we, the kind of person we want to end up with. I think Mm. that was at play (laughs) in the John Mulaney story. Um, But filling a, a relational need for attachment, identity, and I think in some ways looking for a hero or looking for someone you can really root for. Um, I've had conversations over drinks with friends in the me too era of like who would be the who would be the most devastating person to find out had you know abused other people had mm. you know been accused of sexual harassment or misconduct and i won't share the names of the people but it's <laughs> it's there there's something about well one of them is mr rogers i feel like it's pretty safe to say that he was not a sexual predator at this point 
Um, but people who we really esteem mm. as being a source of hope or a beacon of light, um, somebody that we can really root for and see as role models, even though, of course, at the end of the day, we are not privy to the interior lives or motives of these people. I I actually don't know about Mr. Rogers. I, I have good reason to believe he was not a predator, but there's just so much we don't know. And I think it's it's important to remind ourselves that what we see on a screen, on a stage, is a simulated or mediated presentation of the self. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's nefarious or duplicitous, Mm -hmm. but just to remember that it is mediated. And the only way to actually get to know somebody as a person is in flesh and blood relationship over time. Mm. It's proximity. Um, And it's just so important to remember that when we are tempted to put people in the church on pedestals is you need to spend time over years with somebody to know their character and their intentions. And if that's the time it takes to determine whether someone should be a leader, well, take the time, you know? Um, yeah, just proximity being a, a salve and a, um, a solution to a lot of these troubling dynamics. And so if that's the case, then in, in these systems or situations where, where some form of celebrity um, dynamic is starting to take place within a church context. And it's, it's very mm-hmm. seldom, I think, that someone goes, I'm going to try and be a celebrity pastor, so I'm going to go and start a church somewhere and become a celebrity. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems that these things seem to evolve over time, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, how... How do we see that kind of um, the lack of proximity to these figures starting to really cause problems within within the church space? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say, and everybody who's in a mega church and who likes mega churches is going to dock me for this, and that's <laughs> fine. I do tend to think that significant growth in a church in a short period of time is ripe for Mm. problems to creep in almost without even realizing it. Mm. There's something about numerical growth in the number of people coming, the number of baptisms, the amount of money that's being given or tithed, um, getting attention from maybe local media. And because of that growth, it's, very few of us are <laughs> grounded and mature enough to be able to navigate and manage overnight mm. success. Mm. And in part because that kind of success is so intoxicating. <laughs> it feels really good. Yeah. Um, of course, if you're a leader in the church or a pastor, the the dopamine hit, you you know, you know enough not to say like, this just really feeds my ego, <laughs> yeah. but maybe you think this is a sign that God is blessing mm. us, or this is a sign that we're on the right track. This is a sign that, 
um, we're doing something right and we should just keep doing the thing because it's working. So I, I tend to think um, overnight success, overnight growth can be where the problems kind of start to creep in. Um, if the pastor's personality, preaching, communication style, charisma has been central to the growth, then the pastor over time starts to get away with things that they couldn't in times mm. past because they're seen as just that central to the mission of the church. Um, I don't know if the story of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill made its way to it New did. Zealand. Yes. Their okay. podcast has been top of the charts for a, for a year or so. Well, close, oh, okay. close to the top. Okay. Close to the top. Yes. In religious space. So very, very good podcast. And I used to work at Christianity Today and I was just pleased with, um, with the way that they covered that. Um, I think what happened there, you know, one of the lessons is that <laughs> Mark Driscoll's brash persona was a way of cre- for the church creating spectacle, almost like bad attention was better than no attention. Right, yeah. And people were flocking to the church. And oh my gosh, we're in a city, Seattle and the Pacific Northwest are considered heavily unchurched, mm. kind of post-Christian, secular, agnostic, atheistic. So wow, it's amazing that this church is growing in that context. Surely God is blessing us. Yeah, there are some you know, kind of character issues that have started to crop up with Mark. He, the way he uses language, the way he's a misogynist, the way that he lashes out at people. But there are all these other good things that are happening. And surely with enough, maybe time and discipleship by older leaders and kind of submitting to an elder board or other checks and balances, like he'll grow up. Mm. And I just think that that was naive and... um but you see the way that growth then becomes a rationale for putting up with bad behavior. Um, I think connected to that, looking at accountability measures, again, I don't know any pastors who would say, oh, I don't, I don't value accountability or we don't, have, we don't have accountability structures in our church. Everybody knows in theory that that's important. But... In some of these cases, you start to see that the accountability structures are stacked with people who are fans Mm. of the central leader, who have something to gain from their proximity to the central leader, or who just really adore the leader. Like, you know, your preaching brought me to faith, Mm. or you've been a mentor to me. You showed up at the hospital when my family member was sick, like, you know, you, we love you. And of course, you know, pastors should be loved, but I think love and adoration are actually Mm. two different things. And love means speaking the truth in love, which means that there is room and space to sometimes say the hard thing or to limit the pastor's ability to do whatever want, you know, um, to ask for um, transparency in terms of how the pastor is spending their time or money or, you know, what they're doing with their email server. So I think, yeah, what can happen, and especially if you have a leader who is maybe prone to 
narcissistic tendencies or egotism, they they choose people to be on their elder board or their accountability structure that are going to sign off on what they want to do anyway. Um, so those would be some early mm. signs. I mean, we didn't even talk about kind of use of uses of technology, you know, demanding secrecy, mm. um, getting to do things that other staff or leaders don't have to do, um, kind of getting special privileges. And then I think too, I'm just listing all the like, <laughs> ways that this can go badly. There's so many ways. Um, and again, the people who are fans of the mega church model are going to dock me for this. But when you think about the role of a pastor, you know, I, I have been grateful to be in churches my whole adult life, except for one, <laughs> where the pastor was known by people in the church, was available, was human, you know, mm. was around, like was around at meetings and coffee hour and potlucks and in their office when they said they were going to be available for pastoral care and that level of a willingness to be known and to be present, you know, among the people that you are shepherding is just so, so important Mm. and so much about what pastoring is. If we think that pastoring is about shepherding um, and a kind of intimate knowledge of the sheep. And I think when your model of church centers on the deployment of an inspirational message from a really good communicator, we see the disconnect between that gifting and the gifting of shepherding. And they've been kind of separated. And the pa- the lead pastor who is really good at pastor or really good at preaching can just forget <laughs> that primary vocation mm. to shepherd mm. um, because they've come and given the powerful message and it's working. Mm. So you talked a little bit, I think, and we've talked about it uh, from time to time on the podcast this year, as we've been working through some of these, some of these issues is like the, the green room kind of environment as well, um, which I think you, you speak to in, in a book a little bit, um, mm-hmm. which understandably perhaps starts off as does I need a place to go and just prepare or, or something, but seems to have turned into like something else entirely in a lot of these spaces now, like working ag- directly against sort of what you're talking about there in terms of a pastor who is present with the people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the kind of opulence that we start to see in those spaces or who gets to go in and who doesn't. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, people who are in churches that have green rooms and use the green rooms, <laughs> what I'm sure, I'm sure they would say, I just need a space to sit and pray before I walk on stage, or I just need a space to rest and drink some water or coffee after I preached. Like, yes, I I understand the utility on its face. I do think that the presence of a green room, even if well-intentioned, gives the appearance of elitism Mm -hmm. in a church context because a green room is precisely only available to a segment Mm. of important people 
in the church. And the the difference between a green room and like a VIP room feels pretty murky yeah, to me. Or <laughs> like I I'm not so yes, I would I don't <laughs> think I could go to a church where a green room was present. I mean, I wasn't, you know, many years ago now, wasn't a church like and I remember the feeling of like being because I was a musician in in in, in that um community. And there would be on occasion a time when we were invited into the, the green room. And the, because it had built, you know, it had become this space for a certain kind of people, you did feel that little feeling in your mm. in your heart, which said, I'm becoming a bit more special by getting to, you know, go into this space. Mm-hmm. It's very, um, very curious thing to happen within a church community. Um, mm-hmm. You, um, <laughs> you, you talk, I uh, think, uh, Talk a little bit about narcissism, and and that's kind of come up as even as you're weaving through those many those many problems. Um, do you think do you think these figures, you know, uh, are, are narcissists more likely to end up in these positions, or do these systems mm-hmm. create narcissists? Like, what what do you think is going on mm-hmm. here? Yeah, that's a really good question. And here I'm drawing on the work of. Chuck DeGroat, who's a spiritual formation expert here in the States. And he wrote a book that came out two years ago called When Narcissism Comes to Church. So he, in his clinical practice, has met with hundreds of pastors who are maybe burnt out or coming out of a scandal or have had to leave public ministry, or maybe their board has like forced them to go get counseling and they don't want to be there. Um, And I interviewed him for Celebrities for Jesus, and he you know, he he was, it's not that, oh, every pastor who pastors a mega church is a narcissist. That's way too simplistic. But he has found that in a lot of his clients who pastor large churches, he would say there's an elevation around uh, grandiosity and self-entitlement. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they're like diagnosable narcissists, sure. like narcissistic personality disorder, but there is a connection there. Mm you know, uh, grandiosity and self-entitlement. Well, that's narcissists are grandiose and feel entitled to things that they want. So I think that in a lot of these cases, it's a both and to answer your question, that it is both maybe something latent in the leader that is drawn to the spotlight, that wants to be in charge, that thinks that, their way is the highway, their way is the right way. Mm. And they enter into ministry with some of those tendencies maybe. And then they walk into a church context where they're actually rewarded for those kind of tendencies Mm. and personality traits, where there's nothing in the system that would teach them to resist those tendencies in themselves. But the system rewards that kind of leadership style and personality. And then those tendencies are allowed to bloom and blossom Mm. over time until then, you know, 10 or 15 years in, you're like, oh, this is, this person does seem like a full-blown narcissist because they have been part of a system that has rewarded Mm -hmm. those tendencies that they entered ministry with. Um, Chuck is one term that I found really helpful in thinking about the relationship between the pastor and a church system is collective narcissism, Mm. where for the true narcissist who's in a position of church leadership, 
the church becomes a mirror for them, for their ego that reflects back their own greatness and goodness. But the church itself also then becomes enmeshed with that identity and derives a sense of their own self-importance and greatness and goodness Mm. from their attachment to the pastor. So it is a mutually reinforcing system in many of these toxic church cultures. And I think Mm. people coming out of those systems, they don't realize it until, of course, they're out of it and think about some of the practices that were considered very normal, um, Mm -hmm. practices that were considered like honoring, you know, part of an honor culture. And then they examine it and they're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, how is it? How are we treating our pastor like that? I um, interviewed a woman who had worked at a very prominent megachurch in the South, and she wasn't able to speak to me on record because when she left that church, she was asked to sign an NDA if she Mm -hmm. wanted to get compensation. So that's another dynamic. (laughs) Um, And she described a moment, she was like the executive's assistant to this megachurch pastor for a few years. And she tells this story about the church holding an event, like deciding to hold an event where they rolled out a literal red carpet for the pastor and invited people to come get their pictures taken with him at the launch of his new book. Mm-hmm. And it was it was something about like, <laughs> there is a literal <laughs> red carpet. Yeah. Like this is not even a metaphor at this point that we treat our pastor like a celebrity. <laughs> so, but <laughs> part of her story was looking back and realizing I was part of it too. Like mm. I'm not, directly responsible for this person's behavior, but I was complicit in a system that certainly didn't stop him from acting like a celebrity. Yeah, and and that's, you know, the difficult journey for many people coming out of these spaces is is recognizing the degree to which they were in some ways participants in it. I mean, I know this has been the case for me, even though it was quite some time ago that I left that kind of community with the with that model. Of of reflecting back and seeing the ways in which somehow I was a, I was a contributor to that um, to that system mm-hmm. as much as I was um, in the end and in some respects kind of a victim of it uh, to some degree mm-hmm. um, and I think that's such a you know there's a tricky thing for for people to navigate their way through um, and sometimes yeah people mm-hmm. think oh it's like I'm looking back now suddenly at the last ten years of my life thinking what was that how did it, how did that happen mm-hmm. um, caught up within this system that where where things seem to get more and more ludicrous, but not if you're in the bubble, they don't feel that way. It's only right. after the fact or to people outside. Um, and that's been one of the interesting things in New Zealand this year is because there's been a, a number of reports from a New Zealand um, journalist, David Farrier, about this church arise. And, and he's mm-hmm. reporting on this um, and people's stories from within this space, but he's reporting on it kind of as an outsider and I think it's been mm-hmm. a shock to the to the church culture in New Zealand to hear themselves being described in um, by people who are outside of the system when they look at it and they go, "This is what we see when we look at this." Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that's been a shock, I think, to many people within that culture because it's it's mm-hmm. been like, "Oh, is that? Oh, maybe that is maybe that is mad," <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I was reading David Fair is it Ferrier mm-hmm. Ferrier mm-hmm. um uh reporting 
in preparation for our conversation today. And you know, I think he, what I read said that he maybe grew up in the church or mm-hmm. has some kind of background in the church, but considers himself an agnostic. And I know that for some Christians, and I'm I'm describing culture war dynamics in the U.S., but there is a segment of Christians here that are very suspicious of journalists, Mm -hmm. especially journalists who are not among us. You know, they're, they're gossiping. This is slander. They want to tear down the body of Christ. Mm. Um, This is Satan's scheme to make the church look bad. And I (laughs) get so frustrated because, and I don't see that at all. I'm so grateful for journalists who are pursuing the truth and exposing abuse and wrongdoing, Mm. especially when people inside the system haven't been able to stop it, haven't been able to hold their leaders accountable or change the culture from within. I just think that work is so, such an opportunity for Christians to see how others perceive the church Mm. and ask, is this an opportunity for grief, for lament, for um, for repentance, for corporate repentance, for restitution for people who have been harmed, mm. for reimagining what the church can be for people, where it's a place where people actually feel like they can flourish instead of feeling like they're being trampled and kind of made to serve the people at the top. So I'm just, I don't care if the journalist is like hates God or is like a God-fearing Bible-believing Christian. Like if they're telling the truth and they're exposing these horrible things, I'm just so grateful. And I see that as such an opportunity. Yeah, as do I. It's, um, yeah, we certainly have that segment of the the, Christian community here as well. And and one way of, uh, and you see this within a number of spaces actually, and we've seen this within a number of, especially the the mega churches and, and the kind of these celebrity pastor figures is to, characterize these current conversations as some kind of attack on on the church. Um, and I think you mm-hmm. talk about actually in the book the way in which institutions can like layer on the trauma maybe that's caused mm-hmm. by the you know the initial maybe there's a there's a there's a powerful figure who's maybe abused that power in in some way mm-hmm. and then isn't held accountable and then somehow the institution continues to to layer on the trauma. Can you speak a little bit to sort of how you see that happening? Yeah, um I do talk about spiritual abuse among institutions and how an institution can become an abusive person's biggest defender and weapon. And I recount the really awful story of Ravi Zacharias, Mm -hmm. um, founder of RZIM, a prominent evangelistic ministry. um, And he passed away, I believe, two or three years ago. And within several months after his passing, Christianity Today and other publications reported on the findings that he had abused multiple women throughout his ministry, had elicited um, like sexual images from some of his victims, even up until a few months before he died. And he was, he was, predator, he was predatory, mm. you know. Um, and when stories started to emerge several years ago, like several years before the the truth actually came out and there was a truly independent investigation. People inside the RZIM ministry 
um, did not ask for an investigation, just kind of believed Ravi, like Mm -hmm. Ravi's the best. He's, we've, we've known him for years. These, this is all gossip. This is all, you know, lies people seeking to get their day in the the spotlight or get money or, you know, extort Mm -hmm. money or whatever. Um, and then when there were a few leaders within RZIM who were like, actually, Ravi's story doesn't make sense. We, we're hearing one thing and then hearing another and something isn't adding up. And why would he settle with this couple out of court when he said he hadn't? <laughs> like all sorts of things. Mm. Um, they were labeled as gossips. They were labeled as people who wanted to destroy the ministry, who were causing trouble. Mm -hmm. One thing that a few of these leaders heard was, you're not doing the Matthew 18 thing. You know, you need to go to, you know, you need to go to Ravi directly and address this with him. Sure, yeah. Actually, one of the leaders did do that. (laughs) And he, you know, of course, he assured her that all all these allegations were false. And then what do you do after that? So the institution rallied around its founder and most prominent figure in the face of really alarming allegations starting to emerge. Um, and truthfully, I don't, I don't know how that ministry survives when its identity has been so and wrapped up in its leader, its top leader and founder's identity. Like, and then he is exposed to be a predatory person mm. How do you move on from that? Maybe it just needs to shut down. Like maybe that's the only, it just, maybe it just needs to end. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's it's not about, sometimes the most important thing is not continuing on the institution and the system. Yeah, You know, sometimes yeah. these institutions become so toxic and harmful and deceptive that they just, they have to end. There's no way to recover, mm. you know? And it's, yeah, I wonder, you know, that kind of intersects so much with the celebrity conversation, you know, the adored figure who so often has come to represent the entire institution and in the church space, um, comes to represent that church, church. you know, I think about some of the, especially some of the younger and up and coming kind of very cool, um, like American um, churches, you know, the, the, there's a number of figures in that, you know, Carl Lentz obviously was one, but that seems to have... um, Mm gone a, a different way, but, you know, a number of others in that similar kind of space. Yes, um, Rich Wilkerson, yeah. Chad Beach, mm-hmm. Judah Jude, Smith. Yes, yes. <laughs> These are all the cool they're, celebrities. They're very, they're very cool. And um, um, <laughs> it's interesting on, that, you on, know, yeah, sorry, you, you go. Well, just really quickly on the Carl Lentz note, yes, of course, he was one of the most prominent ones. Um. He just posted recently a, an update from him and his family. People who have been following the story anticipate that he is preparing for some kind of reemergence mm-hmm. into the spotlight. I am not a betting woman. If I were, I would wager that within a year, he will be back in a position of ministry leadership mm-hmm. and or he and or his wife have like a book about mm-hmm. redemption or second chances or restoring their marriage, whatever. Not that that story isn't necessarily true. I just think it's 
we've seen this before. We've seen the kind of reemergence yeah. into the spotlight and how easy it is for some of these leaders to kind of essentially like set up shop down the street because yeah. if they find enough supporters and mm. followers, who's going to stop them, you know? And because of all the things we've been talked about, the kind of the adoration, the the hero worship in, in many respects that blind us to the faults and flaws and come to see that as unfair or an attack against, um, then there are going to be probably a crew of people willing and and keen to join up and follow again, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what I suppose is interesting about even these, these, these situations where there's been, you know, abuse within these institutions or by these particular powerful figures is that one person has come to represent the whole community and mm. what would it mean for us to hold this person to account if that person essentially is the community? I mean, the whole, this thing that we care about so much is built on whether that's the Ravi Zacharias story, mm. well, obviously his his organization was very centered on him. But the same is true, right, within some of those mega church spaces, those those young mm-hmm. guys <laughs> we were talking about before, those churches have been built around their personal charisma and as far as mm-hmm. it seems to me from the from the outside. And and that does become, mm-hmm. I think, it, it problematizes calling any of these people to account because of what it means for the institution when you've built it in that way. Right. If if the church or institution is unable to imagine its continuation without mm. that charismatic figure remaining in a position of leadership or remaining at the helm, that feels like a very big red flag. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And you know evangelicals some of this is that evangelicals have such a thin ecclesiology to begin with and then you put evangelicals in consumeristic entertainment oriented american culture um mm-hmm. and it's it's not a surprise that evangelicals are uniquely privy or i should say uniquely prone to attach themselves to and orient themselves around charismatic figures Mm. over and against a kind of institutional identity over the long haul. Um, One of the other things you critique, which I found like really interesting, given your work in the Christian publishing world, which is, I know, a big part of what you do with your life, um, you kind of critique the Christian book publishing world. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, what is it it about the the arena of kind of Christian Christian publishing that seems to, I think in your, from what I understand of of what you're saying, kind of sit alongside and almost and and reinforce and add to this whole kind of wave Mm -hmm. of of these charismatic celebrity well-known on figures. What, what's going on in there that make, that troubles you? Yeah. Well, I say this in the book and I'll say it here. I know many individuals working within Christian publishing who I believe have pure motive. You know, they're not just motivated by contracting and selling books that are going <laughs> to make a lot of money. Like there's a, there's a missional element. There's a there's a value in a quality of writing or I really believe in this person's teaching or message. And we want to be part of helping this person get out their message to a much broader audience than they could in their local church or ministry. So um, yeah, it's not to critique specific individuals to, to kind of paint my Mm. colleagues as money grubbing. Um, (laughs) And of course, 
there are different iterations and different types of Christian publishers in the U.S. that are there are some that are nonprofits that are very oriented around like being an arm of a ministry, and then there are Christian publishers who are part of News Corps and these like multinational conglomerates where the bottom line really is the bottom line at the end of the day. So there's a variety. Having said all that, I would say. Christian publishers know that they're a business and they know that celebrity sells. Mm. And the willingness to extend someone's platform and reach through the written word and through all the things that come with book publishing now, like the conference circuit, Mm. like podcasts, (laughs) (laughs) um, like social media campaigns. Mm. Um, These are all extensions of someone's celebrity reach. And my concern is that people are being, well, they're being given a lot of money to write books either solely or almost entirely based on the size of their platform Mm. without attending questions of quality of writing, um, original thoughts and ideas. Plagiarism has become a kind of expected issue to emerge Mm. with some of these bigger name leaders where they're not responsible for... They are not (laughs) citing other people's works and ideas. Maybe they have a research team writing the book for them. The research team is, of course, not credited. Um, You have contracts being extended based on the size of platform because celebrity sells. And Mm. that extends someone's the way that they're perceived to be credible, the way that they're perceived to be spiritually mature. I think for a lot of Christian book buyers, there might be an impression that, you know, some of these leaders are more vetted than they actually are. Mm -hmm. It is the case today that if you have a massive social media following, you could get a book contract. If you're a pastor or leader or Christian influencer, you can get a book contract. That's not going to be a problem. You'll have an agent who is touting how much your platform has grown and whatever. And like, oh, okay, you don't write, but that's okay. We'll figure that out later. (laughs) Um, We'll figure out the content of the book (laughs) later. Um, Whereas if you are a really gifted writer with lots of original ideas and you've really honed your craft and maybe you haven't had time to build a social media following because you've been spending time writing, Mm -hmm. if you don't have a certain kind of platform, you're going to find it really hard to publish with a traditional publisher. And that just seems wrong to me. That Mm. just seems like we've somewhere along the way we've gotten, something has gotten out of balance. Um, I work at an independent Christian publisher in a division where thankfully I feel like we have a lot of leeway to pursue high quality books from authors with, you know, at different levels of platform. It's Mm. not to say that we don't think about platform, but there seems to be a space to balance those questions with other really important questions. Mm. Um, Yeah. So I um, have concerns. What... uh, I'm interested in this in terms of like a lot of the, you know, these these figures. How many of them do you think actually write their... Like, if you were to give a rough percentage, mm. I don't know if you're allowed to, but of, of how many of these figures would actually write their own books, um, especially these kind of, you know, like celebrity mega pastor type figures. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how many of them are actually writing those books, do you think, personally? 
So I would say my my default assumption would be that megachurch pastor church is growing by leaps and bounds. They're getting on to the national stage. They're becoming a household name. I would imagine most of those pastors are not sitting down and writing their book. Mm -hmm. Now, they might sketch out portions and then ask somebody else to do the writing. So the ideas are their own, but the writing is not. Yeah. But then the ghostwriter is not usually credited mm. on the cover, certainly not on the cover. Um, it is made to appear as if the pastor has written the book when in fact they, have, they haven't really written it. Mm. Um, a lot of the pastors I'm thinking of will essentially pull together some of their sermons and then ask somebody to, uh, yeah. to kind of edit and pull them together. I, I guess that's not bad. It's just, if I'm a book buyer, I would want to know that the book is a collection of sermons <laughs> instead of like original writing. A lot of the pastors use research teams or assistants to pull together material mm. and like kind of cobble it together. So yes, my default is to assume that I want to say a majority, a majority of megachurch pastors getting book deals today do not actually sit down and write their own books. Yeah. And the, I think, you know, as you've said, is, is getting help is is not necessarily a, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world, right? But but it seems the the lack of perhaps integrity or honesty around what's actually happening there um, is in its own way kind of deceptive and builds, you know, it's it's much less... Um, helpful to your brand, I guess, yes. to say I had help writing this book, right? Like that's less, exactly. it pumps you up less in the, in the, yes. in the public imagination. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the reason why yeah. <laughs> a lot of people do not want to have somebody else's name on the cover of their book mm. is that that is seen to either that's seen as a weakness it it it's seen as depleting my authority mm. as a spiritual teacher figure to admit that i had help yeah. <laughs> you know um it it we it, it it appears to weaken the authority of the person whose book is being offered to the yeah. world and also i think it's worth remembering that once a ghostwriter is done with the book and, you know, they're paid in a work for hire agreement, but ghostwriters do not get royalties right. unless it's a special kind of arrangement. And then all, when you think about all the attendant opportunities that can come with a book, like being asked to speak at a conference yeah. where you're paid thousands of dollars to speak for 20 minutes, you know, the ghostwriter doesn't benefit from that. So there is a, there's a, there can be, a pretty large power differential. Mm. And that ju it just seems wrong that the person who has done all the work is not only not credited, but is not um, maybe compensated at the level of value that they're actually bringing to this other person. Mm. 
I think it's such an interesting example of like this culture because it it's obviously only one aspect, right, of what's going on here. But it it kind of points to me to the larger issues of 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 what's driving so much of of the of behavior. And it's not just in relation to book publishing, but it seems like it's that mentality um, of elevating the the authoritative figure at the expense often of of others. Um, mm-hmm. That's just such mm-hmm. a kind of clear example of it, but I, I see that kind of playing out in, in so many different ways in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have a, I have a couple of questions uh, or a question or two about sort of um, about your view of an alternative kind of way of thinking about what matters within faith, because I think it's always nice to kind of land there um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and come back to Jesus, you know, for those who still um, like Jesus. Uh, yeah. The um, but but the question I want to ask before that is just you talk a bit about how the the medium changes the message, and I think that's such an interesting and important idea because you hear a lot of stuff justified around, like you said, even back with Billy Graham and and what started to happen there, which is mm-hmm. all that's happening is we're using technology, or now in this case we're using celebrity in in some respects. Um, mm-hmm to get the gospel to all of these people. And so surely isn't that ultimately like a good thing? Because the message mm-hmm. doesn't change. It's just we're changing the the medium by which it gets to people. Um, so why do you say like the, that the medium changes the message itself? Um, what's going on there? Yeah, well, this again is not an original thought. I'm mm. drawing from a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death from the media theorist Neil Postman, who was heavily influenced by the work of Marshall McLuhan, who came up with the phrase, the medium is the message, which is just a way of saying that um, how a message is transmuted to an audience um, tells you something essential or inherent about the message. And there is no neutral medium. There is no neutral tool for presenting the message. Of course, it's always coming to us in a cultural context. And I want to say that there are certain types of cultural forms of communication and uh, image presentation in terms of someone dressing a certain way or behaving in a certain way that are contradictory Mm. (laughs) to the message that's being presented as we read about in the New Testament, that there are actually unchristian ways to communicate a Christian mm-hmm. message. Um, Neil Postman said that he writes about Graham and other televangelists in his book, and he says that Graham is displays a gross technological naivete. <laughs> <laughs> and I say this, I mean, I think he's right. And also, I'm, I happen to be appreciative of Graham's ministry in a lot of respects, but I do think it's naive to think that a television, a televised crusade wouldn't alter how someone understands or hears or embodies the message that's being presented at the Mm. crusade. I mean, if you're at home alone in your living room and you're, maybe you're watching the nightly news and then you're watching The Price is Right and then you're watching, uh, like a late night talk show or something, and you come across this crusade, well, you're receiving it in a in a medium that is meant for entertainment mm. and consumption and distraction. You're receiving it in a physical space that's relatively uh, 
lonely or atomized. <laughs> um, and even though Graham and other evangelists were always trying to kind of point people to the local church to say, you know, the next step is to get involved with flesh and blood people. Well, the flesh and blood people at my church may be really boring compared <laughs> with this. Yes crusade or like yeah. have bad breath or be annoying or mm-hmm. like our pastor wears pleated khaki shorts and that doesn't appeal to me, to my senses or to my aesthetic mm. <laughs> in the same way that that Graham or this crusade or this cool pastor does. So mm. um, yeah, I tend to think that we are kind of reaping the effects of a naive understanding of gospel presentation. There are no neutral tools mm. and large swaths of the American church have adopted tools that run counter to the heart of the faith and have warped people's understandings of what the faith is, is all about. I remember when I was, again, at one of these Hillsong conferences many years ago and Hillsong United or whoever it was were, were you know, doing the, doing the worship thing. And uh, I went down the front as an enthusiastic 20-something, and I just remember being struck by the fact that they were singing these songs that were so clearly about sort of adoration of God and um, humility and all of this kind of stuff. But there were all of these young people <laughs> down the front trying to take um, selfies with, of themselves with like Joel Houston in the background, you know, and trying to get the right angle so that they could like get that right picture. And I was struck at mm. that time even then when I was still quite immersed in the system of like, Mm-hmm. despite the kind of the intention even and the words that were being used, mm-hmm. something else was actually going on there that was mm-hmm. communicating something quite different, you know. And I think, um, mm-hmm. like you say, perhaps it's, it's unavoidable in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in contrast to that then, like how do you understand um, the, you know, you talk a bit about needing a, perhaps a better theology of power, um, how do you understand how the Jesus story um, mm. pushes back against this way of way of being, or offers us an alternative mm-hmm. to that? Like, what do you what do you what do you see there, and that that still you find interesting? Mm. Yeah. Well, I say this as someone who still likes Jesus. <laughs> That's where I'm coming from, um, and I think one of the reasons that I still like Jesus is because he's just as we read about his life and ministry in the gospel accounts, he is so not like these pastors. Mm. Um, You know, he didn't enter ministry until he was 30 and had a stint in ministry for at most three and a half years that ended in crucifixion. You think about the kind of seeking of self-glory or (laughs) wanting to be in charge Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, he, he, refused that. He reputed that he he repudiated that in the way that he fulfilled God's purposes for him in his earthly life. Um and we read that Jesus was surrounded by crowds. People followed him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Maybe they were seeking healing. They wanted to see a miracle. Jesus also, though, you know, went away from the crowds um, and was willing to associate with people in the crowds who would have really harmed his social standing. Mm. You know, we don't see a kind of 
hobnobbing among the religious or political elite of his day. In fact, he did and said things that really pissed them off and were like bad for his personal brand. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, he, he affiliated with, with women who were just utterly considered second class citizens and unfit to be kind of disciples in any direct way. So kind of pouring out or a, a detachment from seeking um, to enhance his social standing. Um, So I just find that so endlessly compelling Mm. that if you believe that Jesus is, was and is the son of God, and that's how God chose to show up in the world. Um, And how does that not challenge all forms of seeking kind of worldly power, even if you justify it as power can be used for good. I think in general, a lot of Christians have an undeveloped or underdeveloped understanding of how power corrupts. Yeah. Um, Before we started recording, you and I were talking about the hobbits and (laughs) Hobbiton. Yes. And Tolkien, you know, it, I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy is all about <laughs> yeah. a theology of power mm. and how power corrupts. And um, if only more celebrity pastors sat down and read <laughs> the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but um, because they yeah, would, I do because I think that, the mentality right is that they would take the to before we not don't want to lose all of the uh, non. Uh, Lord of the Rings people, but you know, I think most people are familiar <laughs> with aspects of the story, yes. which is that, like, yes. you know, I think we would, t- you know, many of these figures would take the ring because it was a, it would it would help them accomplish these good ends, right? Which is exactly mm-hmm. what Tolkien is kind mm-hmm. of inviting us to resist um, because yes. of what that inevitably will do to us, even the most well intentioned of us, right? I mean, that's why Gandalf refuses the ring. Yeah. You know, like we want the good guy to have it because we think, oh, if if only Gandalf had it, then things would be put to rights. And in fact, Gandalf, who is the wisest of all, says, no, this is all the more why I have to resist it mm-hmm. because um, I know even I, the good guy, could not refuse the temptations that will come with this ring. So now we've lost like almost all of your listeners for not talking. <laughs> hey, I am I'm happy to lose listeners uh for for, for Lord of the Rings. That's uh that's that's a it's a price I'm willing to pay. Um yes. well I think that the temptation thing's really interesting too, right? Because you mentioned um I think Eugene Peterson's The Jesus Way in in your book. And I was so glad you mentioned that because I when I was right at kind of my tipping point of starting to become uncomfortable. This is you know maybe 15 years ago. With the system I was in, mm. which is very much like what we've been describing, I read the Jesus mm. Way by Eugene Peterson, and I was so struck by the his interpretation of the the temptations of Jesus as being like mm. what we we're just talking about. There we see as as well in Tolkien's work, right? Which is it was mm-hmm. a, he was being tempted with not just the ends, but like the means. Like the means are the the means are the ends, which is I guess a, a way of saying mm-hmm. the medium is the message. Like all these these ideas kind yes. of connect, right? Hmm. Hmm. Um. If if the medium is the message for for Jesus, then then what does that tell us about the message? Perhaps I could ask that question as a way to way to head us towards a close. Mm. Um, That's a really good question. I'm gonna. I'm thinking of something pithy, which is something like, 
only Jesus was powerful enough to resist power. Mm. You're like, like only Jesus could have done it. <laughs> um, and, you know, if, if Jesus is revealing the person of God or God's character, this God is so unlike other gods. I mean, to be, to be strong enough to be that weak. Mm. Um, it's just, it, it feels like nothing that, I know I, every time I say this, <laughs> people <laughs> give me pushback, but that's fine. I'm, I'm used to it, but it doesn't feel like the Christian understanding of power in the person of Christ doesn't feel like what we, anybody could have expected or predicted when they thought about who mm-hmm. God is. It is, it is so counter what we think God in the flesh would be like. And Jesus, you know, being cajoled and told to like take things into, like if you were king, if you were in charge, we like defend us, protect us. Like we Mm. need you to be in charge. And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people are so angry. This is not, (laughs) this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we were expecting in the Messiah. Um, This is so not what we had hoped for um, in for how God would show up in our midst. Yeah. I think that's, I, I too, I like, I find this so, compelling because it yeah it tells me or it invites me to think about how following the way of Jesus is in many respects um an invitation to resist the the allure of of my own ego i suppose <laughs> for want of a better term mm-hmm. you know to and and all of the things that that feed that that there's this deep invitation within i think the best of the christian tradition to kind of mm-hmm. do the exact opposite of what celebrity culture seems to be mm-hmm. doing in the church. Um, yeah, and I think about, I mean, you mentioned Eugene Peterson, there's Henry Nowen, mm-hmm. Dallas Willard, Stanley Howard Wass. Of course, so many of them are drawing on the riches of the Christian tradition um, far before American evangelicalism. And, you know, what they remind us of in their in their writing is you can resist whatever would gratify your ego because in fact, you are already beloved. You are already safe. You are already significant. Like Mm. all of that is secure in your belovedness before God. So you don't have to chase this. You know, I think there's a kind of good word in their writing and what I try to capture in my book for people who are celebrities or who Mm. want to become celebrities, like you don't need the spotlight in order to matter, in order to be significant, in order to be relevant. Like all these things are declared about you simply because of who you are as an image bearer Mm. and beloved in Christ. So there's a kind of rest that I think can, can be offered when we, release ourselves from all the things that feed our egos. And I'm, I'm speaking this back to myself, you know, like this is, this is a lifelong Mm. thing of having to learn and figure out, 
but I think it's true. And perhaps it's, you know, perhaps it's no surprise that so many of these figures turn out to be such deeply insecure, tragic figures, right? Because Mm -hmm. they perhaps, like all of us who have the wrestle, like, you you know, like we're all on that, (laughs) that pilgrimage of figuring out what that looks like for us. But mm-hmm. but to have found a place in the church that instead um, rewards stuff that seems so deeply unhealthy for our own psyche, you know. Um, I guess mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. So as much as I like, part of me, part of me gets angry. Part of me gets frustrated. Part of me feels, um, you know, a sense of um, injustice. And and I think those feelings mm-hmm. are, are valid about about what's taken place. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I have this deep kind of sadness for the pe- for those figures who sit at the center of these because uh, kind of like what you're saying there, to have grasped so tightly to all of that stuff, t- mm-hmm. you know, is is perhaps not the invitation to the kind of depth of of acceptance that that we hope mm. lies at the heart of what it is to be image bearers, to be human, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I resonate with that. I think most days I feel if there's a scale, <laughs> I, I feel mostly angry. Yeah, yes, but it's <laughs> but it's important. I, I think it is important because it is true to also grieve for the ways that such deep insecurity can lead people to do terrible things. Mm. You know. Mm. So I'll be working on the sadness part. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm with you on where I sit most of the time, and I think that's, I think that's right in, in many respects. You know? Yes, because yes. of, because of the kind of the harm that is perpetuated. Um, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, hey, look, I'm so appreciative of this conversation. It's been, um, it's been really helpful, and I know those who listen are going to find it, um, yes, insightful and. And a really helpful conversation as as many people are, are processing um, this. If people want to um, find out where you are, not like where you live, but just um, <laughs> <laughs> find out where to, where to find your work, where to find your book, um, what's yes. the best place for them to go? Yeah, I have a website, caitlinbeatty.com, and there's information there about my new book, Celebrities for Jesus, as well as my first book. I also have clips of writing, you know, essays and reported pieces I've I've worked on over the years at the website. I am on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. I am better behaved now than I was a few years ago, <laughs> but can still get a little snarky. Um, I'm better behaved on Instagram. And on Instagram, I met Caitlin underscore Beatty. Right. Awesome. But yeah, CaitlinBeatty.com is a great, is a good place to start. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. So that's my conversation with Caitlin Beatty. I'm sure you'll agree, lots to chew on in there, lots to reflect on. Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for helping take the audio files that I give him and making them sound beautiful in your ears for your listening pleasure. Until next time. <laughs>